I'm not sure how he keeps his toes so nicely manicured in that environment. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. My bedroom window at the weather outside. It's a typical summer's day in the UK. It's early June, it's grey, it's overcast, slightly damp, humid as anything. Now, as I sit here, I'm kind of casting my mind back to a couple of weeks ago. I was in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, uh, attending a travel blogger conference run by Traverse. Essentially, one of these travel conferences, it's where loads of people like me who talk about travel all come together for, you know, workshops, networkings, and let's be honest, beer, because Netherlands. There were other bloggers there, photographers, YouTubers, people with in-depth experience of things like GDPR, SEO, which is really, really useful to talk about on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock after some beer, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, coming together all to talk about travel and sharing knowledge. Now, you see, two of the workshops I attended were on podcasting. I've been contemplating podcasting for maybe over a year now. I grew up listening to the radio more than watching television. And even now, I've tended to have the radio on in the background while I'm at home. BBC Six Music, mainly. Plus, I've never felt comfortable in front of the camera. And if you've noticed and follow me on Twitter, you'll see that most of my selfies have me facing away from the camera. Now, in part, this is because I like the artistic effect of having the viewer be able to put themselves in my place and seeing what I can see. But mainly, it's because it means no one needs to see my face, including me. This is why I don't vlog. That it's taken me so long to experiment with my own podcasting, though, is because I've been wary of expecting people to listen to my Northern England drone for half an hour or so. Uh, my future pod will talk about this more, but I'm pretty much a solo traveller, and this extends to travel admin, travel blogging, etc, etc. Whereas most of the podcasts I've encountered have either been two or three people in conversation for the whole pod, or one host running it and interviewing others along the way. Now, I'm not entirely new to the concept of podcasting. I've been interviewed by Amanda Kendall, not a ballerina.com, for her podcast Thoughtful Travel Pod. And I'm also the travel correspondent, and that's very much in quotes, for the political, they describe themselves as a lefty, podcast and online magazine Left Ungagged. But that latter is simply me recording a five to ten minute piece and letting them fit it in. Now, so before the conference, aside from my limited experiences with them, I knew very little about podcasts, about who does it, what works, what doesn't, and what people wanted in them. But one of the workshops there was run by a lady called Lucy Loosecraft, host of the Lund Running What She Said podcast. And one of the first things she said, because I asked her, was that I shouldn't get too hung up on worrying about doing it mostly solo or about things like the length of a pod, anything like that, since, well, the world of podcasts is full of people doing everything and there's no right way of doing it. So, here I am. This is all highly experimental for me, and I'd love to know, after you've heard a few of them, whether it works for you, and if not, what changes you think I should consider. 
So my plan over the coming pods is to talk a lot about travel, but not necessarily the standard talking about places. I mean, there'll be some of that, but even there, those places will be ones, you know, off the beaten track. Places that are not often mentioned on Twitter travel chats or seen on pictures on Instagram. I also tend to talk about topics in travel, things like bucket lists and solo travel, also concepts like ethical travel and the joys of international borders. There'll be some history and political thought thrown in there too. I suppose at this point, I ought to introduce myself a bit though. Um, hi, I'm Ian. Pleased to meet you. Sit down, kick your shoes off, grab a beer, make yourself comfortable. At the time of this pod recording, I am 42 years old, which is a little older than the average backpacker, but hey, there's room enough for us all. It's just another reason to do podcasting rather than vlogging. As an aside, it amuses me when millennials and baby boomers fight online, because I'm like, raise his hand tentatively, I'm Generation X, we exist too, you know. That said, in one of the arguments I saw on Twitter, one millennial said that one great thing about Generation X was that we had the best music. No arguments there. I've recently been made redundant after 20 and a half years working as a data analyst in the energy industry for a company that supplies electricity and natural gas to businesses and households. Joy. Over 20 years of looking at spreadsheets and databases going, ooh, that's interesting, let me look at that in more detail. And coming to conclusions like, people in Yorkshire are happier than people in London. And... People who have prepayment pay-as-you-go energy meters in their properties are more likely to be less affluent. Cutting-edge stuff, this. Anyway, now I've got a lot more free time, I figured it was a good time to go deeper into travel and do what I enjoy rather than what pays the bills. I'll let you know in a couple of years if it's worked or not. I've been into the travel thing for much of my life, and my travels have pretty much been always, how you might say, offbeat. My first adventure abroad was at the age of 11, when my uncle took me somewhere he'd been a few times on business. So, unlike most young Brits at the time, my first destination was an island, France or a Spanish island, Denmark, with a day trip to a wet Sweden thrown in for good measure. Evidently, the experience didn't put me off, as from then on, a healthy desire to see the world followed. Having pen pals in my teenage years helped, and my first proper solo adventure in foreign languages came at the age of 19, when I ventured on my own to Yugoslavia, a country in civil war at the time. To meet a friend I'd only written two, three times, and with virtually no money. Strangely, she still speaks to me, and indeed may well appear from time to time on this pod. Uh, since then, my travels have been, well, it's, they've continued to be varied, really, and somewhat unique. I'm very much attracted to places off the beaten track, as you can probably guess, and I guess one of my aims is to prove to the world and myself that every place is worthy of mention. Most people don't live in tourist hotspots. Indeed, I tend to visit places because I want to. There's always something there that I find interesting, even if no one else does. You'll note, very quickly, I've got a related and strong interest in socio-political history. Snore. Yes, old buildings are pretty, but my interest is in the other things that humanity has done, the places where we've changed the world, for better or worse. In addition, as I mature like an old cask of brandy, I seem to be becoming unusually more socialist and firebrand, and I've developed a particular interest in revolution, dictatorships and civil strife, places where people have been repressed and places where they have fought back. This all means I've sought out places like Timor-Leste, the student agitprop cause when I was at university, and the Aral Sea, where I could stand and see the devastation that humans have wrought in the name of progress. Also, I was drawn to Cambodia, not for Angkor Wat, which I only visited in passing, but for the Killing Fields and Pol Pot's grave. I was born in year zero, even. Some places I want to visit in the future are Bolivia, the Civil War reminders in El Salvador, the genocide sites in Rwanda, food, culture and scenery of Pakistan, the volcanoes of Vanuatu, but they're in no particular order. 
This connects with an obsession with maps and a feeling of wanting to know what lay beyond the confines of them. I used to obsess over them as a kid, and even now I've got a liking for borders and frontier zones, and will actively plan out a route specifically to cross the most obscure one possible. Because I can. Again, a future pod will talk about my feelings about borders, their apparent inviability, and the right of self-determination. I do also have a strong pull towards the natural environment. Countryside rather than animals, it has to be said, though being so close to elephants and hippos in Botswana was pretty awe-inspiring. My most relaxed state, on the road at least, ignore the tattoo, that again will be a subject of a future pod, is when I'm walking alone in the mountains or forests lost in nature with only myself to worry about. One thing I'm not is a beach bum. Perhaps surprisingly, given my blog identity's name. Partly this is because I have the attention span of a gnat high on ecstasy and always need to be doing something. And partly because I'm British and therefore melt in temperatures above about 23 degrees centigrade. This attention span problem, coupled with being incredibly impatient at times, means that most of my travels are place to place to place to place. I find it hard to stay in one place for more than about three or four days. It's one of the reasons I only carry hand luggage when I travel. I haven't checked in bags on a plane since 2012. It saves unpacking and repacking, plus it's easier to physically carry on public transport. When you're wedged into the seat of a, the back of a 16-seater minibus that's carrying 24 people, Benin, I'm looking at you, you need as little luggage as you can. Naturally then, given my offbeat destinations, my travel style, I prefer to travel alone. This is for several reasons, including a penchant to be as flexible with my plans as possible. I do a lot of things last minute, even down to waking up not knowing what country I'll be sleeping in that night. An allergy to commitment, a dislike of having to rely on other people, and a general preference of being on my own anyway. Aside, this is also why I'm very bad at relationships. Online, I'm co-host of two travel chats on Twitter. Hashtag TRLT on Tuesdays, one of the largest and most influential chats on Twitter, which concentrates on the road less travelled rather than just the usual tourist sites, and hashtag PT Travel on Sundays, which in theory is a collection of part-time travellers talking about how they travel while still holding out a full-time job, but in practice is a nice community of chilled people talking about anything and everything, even bridges. My aim for this pod is to have a topic each week introduced by a series of vox pops of fellow travellers with their brief opinion on the topic before I go into more detail about it. I'll also have a lesser known destination of the week where I'll spend a couple of minutes talking about somewhere I really like or where I find interesting that may not be on your radar. I ummed and ahed about what my first pod should be about but decided that as we're talking introductions I ought to address the elephant in the room. Yeah, travelling barefoot? I don't really get that. I don't even go barefoot in my home. I mean, think of what the bottom of your feet are exposed to. So says Deb from Tagalong Travel. Yep, today's topic will be barefoot travelling. And I asked a few people I knew online what their first impressions were. And you can hear from that that Deb was particularly uninspired by it. But other people I've spoken to were maybe a little more open to trying it. Here, for example, is Nat from Nat Packer Travel. Definitely different travelling barefoot. I can definitely see the benefits. I love walking around barefoot and I do it as often as I can, but my feet are still pretty sensitive, so it's not something I could do. And also I'd be scared of glass all the time, if I'm honest, but fair play, why not? My friend Yaya in Serbia is even more open about it, but highlights some issues that she has with it. Travelling barefoot. I've never tried that. I only went barefoot on long walks in my neighborhood and I really enjoyed the experience, uh, the fresh grass and uh, it's very, very lovely. But I'm not sure I would be able to travel barefoot. When I travel 
Sadly, I need very, very comfortable shoes with very good insoles because I like to walk a lot and explore a lot on foot and that's the only way that it works for me without getting tired. But most people just have never come across the idea before uh, and Rubens, from being around the globe, speaks for them pretty well, I think. But it would be interesting to hear some experiences. So, as you may have no doubt noticed by now, I have a slight quirk. My footwear, or apparent lack of it, I am the barefoot backpacker. Now, a barefoot doctor is someone who, usually a local farmer, is trained in basic medicine and operates with few resources, but serves as the only local doctor in rural areas, mainly in China, where more qualified doctors generally can't or won't practice. I see myself similarly when travelling. I've got a basic knowledge and skills around travel, carry very few resources with me. I'm not great with languages, but I'm prepared to go right down to the local level when I travel and see a country from directions other than from the outside or window of a four-star hotel. But let's be honest. Although my blog has a metaphorical name, I do prefer to be barefoot. And indeed, there's a whole host of friends on Twitter who've never actually seen me wear standard footwear. Indeed, at one previous travel blogger conference, despite my reluctance to post pictures with my face on it, people still came up to me and recognised me. By my toenails. That, right there, is an example of a great brand image. Though even I have a face picture on my LinkedIn profile, I'm at least, vaguely, sometimes professional. So, why barefoot? Well, I'm sure you're expecting me to say something about how it allows me to feel a resonance with the earth and how grounding, I hate that word, is important, or because I'm channeling my inner hippie. I do like daisies, to be fair. I have a couple of daisy toe rings. Or because I'm anti-authority and trying to stick it to the man or something. Or maybe you're expecting me to reveal some kind of foot fetish that it excites and arouses me to walk barefoot. But no. Simply, my feet get too hot in closed shoes. They make my feet uncomfortably warm and stuffy, and sometimes make me feel like I've got two bricks on the bottom of my legs. Doubly so considering I walk around a lot, or I'm stuck on transport in enclosed spaces with dodgy aircon. That said, I do enjoy the freedom that being barefoot gives, the relaxed, casual style and that sense of being unrestricted. My clothing style in general might be defined as smart hippie. I'll tend to wear a shirt everywhere on my travels, short-sleeved for comfort, quick-dry and non-iron, yet still with buttons and a collar and my trousers are usually full length and work safe. I do have a couple of pairs of denim three-quarter length trousers that are cooling in hot weather, but also hide the knees so they're suitable for religious and conservative sites. So how does being barefoot feel? Well, I do find it more comfortable, as I say, and it feels kind of more natural to be barefoot. Generally, pavements are pretty smooth, and some of the country trails around my house, certainly, are made of what feel like compacted soil and mud, so they're soft but not damp. Sandy roads, the mainstay of cliched holiday pictures, don't feel much different to walking on hard beaches. Soft sand is awful to walk on, by the way, regardless of footwear. It does take some getting used to, but once you've done it a bit, it's fine. My stride seems to naturally shorten a little, and I've got a tendency to walk more on the balls of my feet than further back, so my heel hardly strikes the ground at all. This means that less of my foot touches the floor, which means less scope for injury. That's the question most people ask, and indeed, Nat mentioned it in her Vox Pops. Aren't you afraid of stepping on something nasty? Which is a fair point, to be honest. Thing is, I have these objects called eyes. I know it's not as simple as that, but walking barefoot does make you concentrate more on the route in front of you, so you pay more attention to what's there than normal. To be fair though, most of the things you might be worried in, about walking in, you wouldn't step in anyway. No one walks through dogboo on purpose. And things like broken glass you'd probably avoid anyway out of sheer reflex. It's more the things you wouldn't think of that are the most dangerous. So for example, I find that 
cobblestones and flat marble are slippier under bare feet when wet than they are in shoes, and they don't have good balance at the best of times. Also, I'm not very good with spatial awareness, so I've banged my little toe several times on things like raised curbs, or in three very painful places, and you'd think I'd have learnt from the first one, the wheels of shopping trolleys I've been pushing. The other thing that frequent barefoot walking gives you is very tough soles. This has the advantage of meaning that I can, and indeed have, walked over small shards of broken glass or thorns without any discomfort, because my feet are too hard for them to penetrate far. The disadvantage is that my feet, heels especially, get very dry and rough. I always feel if I rub them together I'm in danger of starting a bushfire. One of the compromises I make by only travelling with hand luggage is not packing moisturiser. Maybe this will come back to bite me when I'm old and look like some kind of four-year-old shrill prune. I mean, it's not infallible as well, walking barefoot. I mean, in Antwerp a couple of weeks ago, I managed to get a large piece of glass stuck in my sole. But after limping to a nearby wall, I pulled the offending glass out, mopped up the blood, yes, waited a while until it all stopped, and then walked on. I do always carry a pair of tweezers with me, just in case. Thing is, at no point did this hurt at all. It was just bloody, literally, annoying. I know I should have been more attentive. I'd already spotted that in both Antwerp and Leiden earlier that week there was a tendency for glass to collect in the gaps between the cobbles, but I just had an argument in a nearby museum, don't ask, and I wasn't feeling in sorts. I was helped, by the way, by a chap working at a nearby bar cafe who brought me out some strong alcohol to rub on the wound, which presumably helped. At least, I think he was working there. I hope he wasn't sat outside drinking the stuff. It uh, didn't look like it was in a standard bottle, shall we say. At no point did he make any comment about my lack of footwear. He just left me to use the bottle, gave me some kitchen roll, and wandered back to his seat. And it's sometimes interesting to gauge how people react once they know I'm barefoot, though I'll mention later how in recent years they don't even notice most of the time. To be fair, though, it's hard to judge whether they're thinking about the feet or what's on them. My toenails aren't particularly attractive, so I bling them up with sparkly nail varnish, usually green or purple, which catches people's eyes if I'm sat down or not moving much. So an example in Chile, I had three people walk past me, look at my toes and walk off laughing. To be fair though, often I won't notice people's reactions at all, and it's only if I'm with friends um, that I'll find out because they'll tell me that people are looking. I had a few comments in West Africa, but not the way you'd expect. I mean, you'd have thought that the sight of a tall, hairy white man strolling the streets of Africa barefoot would raise a few eyebrows. In fact, I had far fewer comments than I expected, and those that did came amusingly enough from shoe salesmen. African shops tend to be more like street stalls, where people sitting on the side of the road display their wares on the floor in front of them. When I walked past them, I was invariably, and unsurprisingly, greeted by, You want shoes? Look, here, good shoes. This was especially true in Togo, where I also had several offers to repair my sandals. They assumed I was barefoot because they were broken. In any case, the ones I had with me, which I'll talk about later, were made of a rubber-type material. A typical cobbler wouldn't have any chance at all. They seemed a little surprised, but accepting that I preferred not to wear shoes. I certainly had no real problems with officialdom over the time. I've crossed a number of international borders barefoot, including two in West Africa and a couple in the Balkans. I've travelled on coaches, local buses, trains, through airports, in and out, with mostly no worries, and riding on the back of motorbike taxis in Africa barefoot felt so free and refreshing. In more recent times, with my barefoot sandals, that I'll talk about later, I've been going to restaurants, pubs, etc., with no one batting an eyelid about the fact my feet were bare. People genuinely don't pay attention. The only times I've ever been warned off have both been to do with air travel. 
At Brisbane Airport, of all places, the woman at the gate wouldn't let me on the plane until I put my sandals on. I was completely barefoot and wearing the knee-length shorts, so it was blindingly obvious. Whilst on a flight from Chicago to London, I was sat in the bulkhead seat near to where the aircrew sit, and one of them told me I should really wear footwear for takeoff and landing, just in case the plane crashes and we all have to make a quick escape. Cheerful. Thanks for that advice. I'm sure in that situation, my first thought isn't going to be how my feet were feeling. I've had a couple of questions directed me about my barefootedness in general, including with a chap in Skodra in Albania, about it being unusual and culturally odd, but that was about all. As I'm registered on Hostel World as a barefoot backpacker, I've had a couple of hostels note my unusual name and look at my feet before I arrive. And then they've ended up being looking forward to my arrival in excitement so they could ask me about it. This happened in Albania, but also in the USA, where I was called famous by one of the hotel staff. Hmm. Again, strong brand image. Oddly, I never used to like being barefoot at all. I remember once my uncle dropping me off at school, then getting him to go back home to pick up my trainers for PE that I'd realised I'd forgotten to bring, rather than have me do it barefooted. I hated the idea of being barefoot. I found it, I don't know, humiliating maybe? Or at least that I'd lose face by being so, or worried that people would laugh at me if I did? No idea when it changed, sometime in my mid-teens I think, and I've no idea why. Maybe I wish I knew, but it was a very strange time in my life anyway that I'd, you know, rather not think about. I do still have those feelings sometimes, especially the thought that people will judge, that people will laugh. But the older I get, the less I seem to worry about it. It's kind of linked in with self-confidence. It's something I do more when I'm feeling more confident in myself. I always worried about it beforehand, but once I do, it feels like the most natural thing in the world. And it feels very weird to even slip on minimalist sandals again after a prolonged time walking barefoot, almost as if they're in the way. And because I feel more at home being barefoot, doing it ends up giving me that self-confidence, as it means I'm being me. I'm able to be the person that I am. So I'm more likely to stand tall and venture forth. It's also great for my mental health. As someone who often has issues with mood swings and feelings of low self-worth, I find, for example, the feeling of grass under my feet to be very de-stressing and relaxing. I'm also more likely to travel barefoot than I am to be barefoot around my hometown. And if you'd seen my hometown, you'd understand why. I think this is partly because I know when I travel, I'm just passing through a place and I know I'll never see those people again. There's also that bloody-minded streak that comes out from time to time, a kind of I-will-do-this feeling. Macedonia, or whatever it was or will be called now, is the only country I've only visited barefoot, but I didn't wear footwear for the entire time I was on this trip to the Netherlands for the recent travel blogger conference, which was a total of about 13 days, and I've certainly had long periods of time on my travels where I've chosen to remain barefooted in countries as diverse as Togo, Albania, the USA, Germany and Australia. Now, I've mentioned this in passing earlier, but to help additionally with my self-confidence and also to allow me to travel barefoot more without hassle, I had a friend of mine make me a couple of pairs of crocheted, what you might call barefoot sandals. Now, you can find a myriad of traditional ones online, just search on Etsy. They're basically more akin to foot jewellery than sandals, often quite blingy. And you fit a toe through a loop, pull them up your foot and tie them around your ankle and lower leg. Now, the trouble with them is that they usually only loop around one toe and are often merely a strap of fabric or cord in width. So while they look great for barefoot beach weddings or hippie festivals, wearing them around town, eh, looks a bit silly. Plus, I wanted something that made it less obvious I was barefoot. What she made me were a, a thick pattern, one of daisies, the other of sandal-like straps, that cover most of the foot and hook around two toes. The effect means that unless you're paying attention or look at me walking from behind, it does look as though I'm wearing proper, if slightly fancy and unusual, sandals. 
This allows me to get into museums, restaurants, etc. without anyone batting an eyelid. I'm walking down the streets of Breeze. No one pays me a second look anyway. People have loved them, uh, loved the style of them, and have been genuinely surprised when I've revealed their lack of soul. I've had them for a couple of years now. Prior to that, I was entirely and clearly barefooted, and I feel more comfortable and less self-conscious wearing them than I was wearing nothing. Of course, I'm not always barefoot. There, I admitted it. There goes my brand. But let's be honest, I'm British and it gets cool and wet. I have done the whole barefoot in the snow thing for the gram. It burns. I know people that do go barefoot in the snow in Britain and fair play to them. But I'm quite fond of my toes and I'd quite like to keep them. That said, I am a cold weather creature who doesn't feel chilly until long after everyone else is wearing woolen tops. It does take a real dip in the temperature before dressing it warmly comes to mind. Uh, it has to be about... My experiments have shown about 5 degrees centigrade before I resort to closed shoes. More likely, it's underfoot conditions that prevent me from being barefoot. I don't like gravel or trails littered with small stones. Again, this is quite a popular British thing, with many footpaths being through quite stony ground. With a light enough step, trails with scattered stones are okay, but even a full gravel path is very awkward. I also find that damp weather, which, you know, happens a lot, causes every little stone, even on what appear to be decent pavements, to stick itself to my foot like glue, which is incredibly annoying. Obviously also some wilder environments are often unsuitable. Climbing hills or walking through forests is usually best done with some foot protection if you're not used to it. Rocks and twigs and prickly flowers, oh my! In addition, I'm always a little wary if I'm in a new town and don't know the feel of the environment yet. So I'll often sit on buses and look out the window at pavements and go, hmm, that looks okay, or mm, I'm not sure about that. So what do I wear when I want the freedom of coolness of bare feet but not the hassle? Well, I'll tend to wear what seem to be called minimalist sandals, specifically the brand Zero Shoes, which I will admit now I am now a brand ambassador for but wasn't when I started doing this pod. They have very thin soles, around 4mm, and attached to the foot using a cord that links to a node next to the big toe and a strap around the back of the ankle. This caused arguments at work when their suitability to office footwear was called into question. My old play workplace banned flip-flops, but these have a back to them. Despite the thinness, I've had no problems with them across any of the terrain I've walked them on, uh, from mountain passes in Kyrgyzstan to hot stony roads in West Africa. They're also easy to slip on and off if I need to enter a temple or someone's home, and for barefoot days I can roll them up and stick them in my pocket, or more usually slide them between my trousers and my belt, so I always have them to hand or foot if need be. So there we have it, an introduction to who I am and what it means to be a barefoot backpacker. Now, as I said, every week I intend to have a lesser-known destination of the week, where I introduce a... Well, a clue's in the name, really. A place could be anywhere in the world, from small towns near popular cities that people should explore more, to entire countries that seem to have fallen off people's radar. What I'll always try and do, though, is talk about a place that relates to that week's pod. I've started with a tricky one, but here we go. Lesser Known Destination of the Week This week's destination, which I ummed and ahed about for a while, is Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania. I spent the best part of three days there a couple of years ago, so not long, but in that time I did decide it's probably one of the most pleasant cities I've been to. It's a calming, restful, pretty place, it's a nice size, and it seems to have everything you might need. As a non-Lithuanian speaker, it was also relatively easy to get around, though learning the local language would bring more benefits than it would do in, say, Netherlands. It's just a nice shade of cool without being too hip. My first impressions upon arrival by train from Belarus under a torrential downpour were that it looked very pretty and despite being Soviet 50 years didn't feel like it, resembling more like a Central European city, similar to places like Krakow and Ljubljana. 
And the other thing it has in common with Ljubljana is its closeness to the countryside. A short walk west of the city lies Vingis Park, a huge, about 160 hectares area with grassland and forest, which seems to be very popular with joggers. It's quite easy to get off the beaten track and wander through the trees in a world of your own. On the other side of the city, there's another park with a hill topped with the three crosses. These are three pure white crosses built in the mid-17th century, supposedly to honour the memory of a group of early Franciscan monks executed on the hill by locals for trying to um, promote religion. They were torn down in the Soviets in the 50s, but subsequently rebuilt on independence. Nearer to the city centre, on another hill, is the tower of Gediminas Castle. Built originally in the early 1400s and rebuilt in the 1930s, it's what remains of the original fortification of the city. It's named after a chap called Gediminas, who was the Grand Duke of Lithuania some 80 years earlier to the castle's uh, building, and it's believed that he was the founder of Vilnius itself. It's a steep climb, but you're rewarded with great views over the city. As well as historic, Vilnius is quite quirky and alternative. A teaser for this can be found in the western suburbs, on the way to Vingis Park, where you can find a statue of the head of Frank Zappa. Because, of course, nothing says obvious quite like a statue not just the statue, but the head of a 1970s experimental musician. Yeah, I have no idea really, but apparently it's quite a famous thing. And I guess it makes a change from Pushkin. Another teaser is in the Old Town, where there are several streets lined with poetry and artwork. This is apparently a local initiative called the Street of Writers, Literatu Gatve, promoting Lithuanian writing, and pretty much anyone who's ever written Lithuanian is a writer from Lithuania who has any connection whatsoever with the country or its culture or heritage is commemorated here. I'm kind of half hopeful that the very act of podding this gets me on the wall, though I'd probably have to translate it into Lithuanian first. That's what Google Translate is for, of course. The main alternative centre in the city, however, is Ujupis, the artistic quarter of Vilnius, which, with a bit of tongue fairly in cheek, has declared itself an autonomous republic. On the wall of one of the streets there is the constitution of the microstate, black on silver tablets in 20 different languages. It's all very philosophical and utopian, but it's meant to show a point while still being humorous. Jupiter's Independence Day is, as you might imagine, April 1st. And on that day, mock border guards can stamp your passport as you cross the bridge. In addition, they advertise that anyone can be an ambassador to the micronation for any concept you just have to ask. This means, for example, they have an ambassador for clouds. Strange people, artists. I always meant to ask them for recognition as the Ujupian ambassador for barefoot backpacking, but they haven't actually responded to my email. And that's why I've chosen it as my first lesser-known destination. As a whole, Vilnius has a good place in my heart for making me feel more self-confident about myself and the way I am. And, more to the point, it was the, basically the first place I went to as the barefoot backpacker, mainly because the only sandals I had at the time had actually broken. But it was also a very comfortable place to backpack barefoot. I didn't feel any bad vibes about doing so, the pavements were comfortable, and pretty much everyone, from the public to the shops to the tourist sites, barely gave me a second glance, just the way it should be. Well, that's all for this week. Next week's pod will be more travel-related, as I discuss the benefits of hometown travel. Until then, thank you for listening, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, 
which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.